This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to... We're watching here, we're watching here... This is Opinionated Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me is the vanity to my sloth, Perry Seibert. How are you doing, Perry? <laughs> I'm so happy I'm not sloth. <laughs> not that I think you are, but I'm just so oh, happy it's not me. <laughs> oh, oh I, am, I am totally sloth, especially these days. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. All is, all is well. All is thankfully unchanged since the last time we spoke. Good to hear. I'm really excited. We're starting our first miniseries today, which I think will uh, will be a lot of fun. We're doing Five from 95, which is our five-week look at five movies turning 25 years old this year. Uh, this week, we're going to start with David Fincher's Seven. But before that, Perry, what have you been watching? Uh, I stumbled across something that I didn't know existed. Uh, uh, thanks to... I watched Shockproof, which is an entry in their, I think it's still up, their list of, uh, it's, it's a retrospective of early Douglas Sirk films, the film Sirk made before he made all those great melodramas in the 50s. And it's, it's this, it's, it is, so it's a crime film that was co-written by Sam Fuller. Mm. And it's this amazing, not Frankenstein's monster, but not perfect melding of their two sensibilities. It is this really great gritty, you know, B-ish crime movie about this woman who is paroled uh, uh, from a, a murder conviction and she's got to put her life back together and she's waiting to get back together with the guy for whom she committed the murder uh, who's been, who who's, seems to have waited for her, but her parole officer is, very much uh, is a do-gooder and has political ambitions and ends up falling in love with her. And so it's this great mix of this, you know, the, the, the sort of the gritty crime thing we expect from Sam Fuller mixed with the, the women's picture that you expect from Douglas Sirk. Cause mm-hmm. it's very much about this female heroine and who she's going to love and if she's still in love. Uh, and they really, they really commingle together in an interesting way. Like they don't, Fuse. <laughs> I'm not saying it's this perfect marriage, but it's also not this ugly contraption that's put together that that forces these two uh, desperate tastes together. It's a really interesting watch. I'm so glad it's there. And it's if if all else fails, Chris, 80 minutes. Come wow. on, 80 minutes. They need to make more features that are just 80 minutes long. I agree. I agree. There is nothing more daunting than pulling up a movie, especially at the end of the day when I just want to sit and watch something, and I pull up something I really want to watch and find out, oh my gosh, this is two hours and 30 minutes long, and I don't have the, <laughs> I don't have the energy for that. That uh, that may have come up with a movie where you uh, might discuss later in the podcast. Um, <laughs> but uh, that, that sounds fascinating. What have you been watching? Uh, I was going to talk about um, the Ben Affleck basketball drama, uh, The Way Back, uh, but I will just leave my review in the show notes for that, because last week, 
it was actually the day after we recorded um, the episode that just came out last week. Um, I, I think it might have just been from feeling guilty about admitting to watching Tiger King. But I wanted to, <laughs> I, I wanted to delve into some good documentaries. So I went on Criterion Channel and I watched uh, David and Albert Maisel's Salesman from 1969, oh, which I had never seen before. And that oh, so good. That rolled into a whole week marathon where I followed that up with uh, Gimme Shelter and Grey Gardens. Um, all three films are fantastic. I had never seen any of those three before. And I am so glad that I took the time to watch all of them because that is some great documentary filmmaking there. Um, those are three films. Obviously, Salesman follows Bible Salesman as they are traveling from Boston to Florida and trying to make a living that way. Uh, Gimme Shelter is the events surrounding and including the Rolling Stones playing at Altamont. And then Grey Gardens is the story of two socialites, former socialites who are just kind of wasting away in this dilapidated mansion. And these three films couldn't have been more different. Um, I, I loved them all. I think uh, salesman is definitely still this relevant look at how capitalism just forces this despair and and depression on us. Um, I felt like I was spending an entire movie with Gil from The Simpsons, uh, the uh, the salesman Gil, <laughs> um, and, and that was just this fascinating movie. I, I think Gimme Shelter is it's by turns a really energetic rock movie but it's also this fascinating look not only at all the events that happened at altamont but this metatextual look at the act of filmmaking and documentary filmmaking and who sees what and where they're pointing the camera and yes. gray yes. gardens is just I, I walked away with that with my head spinning because you walk away not knowing whether to laugh at these two women or feel bad for them or admire them. And that is a feature, not a bug, as the kids say. Um, I, I loved spending all that time there. Um, I, I could really do a whole episode on any of these movies. And yeah, I'm just so glad that, that uh, I took the time to watch them. They are fantastic documentaries. I highly recommend them. They're on Criterion. Um, yeah, I'm assuming you've seen all three of these, Perry. When we did our documentary episode last year, I I would have put any of those three <laughs> in my top three documentaries of all time, and I simply chose them because I chose documentaries that j just struck even more personally for me. That's the only reason they're not on the list. Those are spectacular movies. I had, I, I love all of them. Gimme Shelter has one of the single it. I, 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 I have a certain amount of uh, I have a certain amount of boomer sympathies. I, I'm a boomer friendly Gen Xer. I don't I don't mind them. <laughs> Unlike many people in my generation, uh, but even I can laugh wholeheartedly and full throatedly at that moment in Gimme Shelter as as this perfect representation of everything that was wrong with the late '60s when uh, when they're they're explaining how Marty Balin got got knocked out. By the Hell's Angels, the mm -hmm. one who was playing with the uh, uh, with the Jefferson Airplane set beforehand, and other members of the Jefferson Airplane are explaining this to the Grateful Dead, and I think it's Jerry Garcia. 
It might be Bob Weir. I forget at the moment who gets told the story and the dude, and the dude is super upset about Marty getting knocked out cold during their set. And he's all upset about this. And he finishes the story and there's this pause. And then one of the guys in the dead goes, bummer. Yep. And it's yep. just, it's so good. It's such an amazing moment. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, Great Gardens is, it's, Great Gardens is one of those films that it is amazing to me how many people, how many films are so obviously uh, owe, their, owe their complete existence to oh, yeah. it. And and miss what's best about it. Like you said, it's not making fun of them. It's not it's not celebrating them. It's just taking them in. These are interesting people. They're not interesting because they're a train wreck, or at least they're not interesting only because they're a train wreck. Uh, and it's just an it's just an amazing profile of of yeah. It is it leads the way for the. Uh, 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 I'm blanking. Oh, uh, uh, Thin Blue Line. Oh, Errol uh, Morris. It, yes, yes. It leads the way for the <laughs> early Errol Morris stuff to me. Yes. Like, he's the only one who sort of got it. Yeah. <laughs> and did something with it, advanced on it in any way. But yeah, Great Gardens is, is, uh, they're, yeah, those are three spectacular movies. And all three of those movies are available on Criterion Channel. We don't get a penny for this. We're still paying for Criterion Channel. So take our word that these are worth we checking are. out. Um, I have to say, like, I was very honest about the fact that I had a Criterion Channel subscription for a very long time that I did not use. Uh, and this year I've started to use it. And I probably still use it less than, like, a Netflix or a Disney just because there's not really viewing on there that is lazy viewing at the end of the day. Like, you... I want to be able to pay attention to everything I'm watching. I would say my satisfaction rate on there. I don't think I've I've turned away from a movie regretting having watched it. Um, it <laughs> it's very satisfied in that service. So uh, yeah, I, I mean that's one of the nice things about being in quarantine is I'm watching more movies and I'm watching good movies, which is which is always nice. Speaking about good movies, we're gonna talk today. Like I said, this is our. Five from 95 miniseries. Uh, we were just kind of talking, I think, after we finished recording an episode a few weeks ago. And somehow we started talking about movies from 95 and thought, well, what if we just do a series on five of those movies? So this week we're going to talk seven. This is David Fincher's second film uh, starring Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. And we have talked about this one on the podcast before. I believe you were the one who brought it up at Halloween, right? Yeah, this is. Oh, we talked about it. How scary it is! It's one of the mm-hmm. few films that's ever outright scared me in the mm-hmm. theater. Uh, and I, it's a, it's you know, it, as we were talking about a couple weeks ago, I remember vividly seeing this in the theater. <laughs> I remember the visceral experience of, of 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 having Seven play out before me the first time it ever did. And I, we we came on this because I forget from year to year. I, I, I really don't remember my top ten lists from year to year anymore. They're, they, I, I, I treat top ten lists very ephemerally. You know, my opinions change easily. And so I don't often retain them. But boy, 95 uh, really st- – I remember my top five films of that year. Uh, four, sorry. T- no, top five that year really clearly. And it's uh, – and when I mention them – we both had uh, – this is the one we both locked in on immediately. We, yeah. <laughs> would you agree with me? This is, this is one of the best. And uh, 
yeah, I love that we're doing this. Or we're going to talk about uh, a couple of more films that I, I really, truly love from that from that year. Yeah, and there, there's even a it few... I'm sorry. Your request. There's even a few coming up that we're going to talk about where I'm not even sure it's a great movie, but I, I'm really excited about the conversation we're going to have about the movie because I think they're really indicative of certain filmmakers at that time. So I think it's going to be really fun. Um, you, said, you said you saw this in the theater when it came out. I... I can't remember if I told this story on the podcast or not. Um, I know I've talked about my dad before, and he would do the scary movie nights with us where he would pick out really, really bad choices to show to kids, like uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre at age 10. Um, And I was a little older, 95. I would have been, I think, a sophomore in high school, sophomore or junior, depending when it came out or when I saw it. and it was one of those nights my mom and my sister were gone it was my dad home with my brother and i and so he sent us to the video store to pick up a movie and he wanted us to get 12 monkeys um and it was not in and so he's like well if they don't have that get seven so my dad had some brad pitt thing going on at that point but we got seven and we popped it in and i remember Or just movies with numbers in title. No, that that's very possible too. Um, I, I remember we watched Seven that night. I, I remember my brother, who is two years younger than me, fell asleep about halfway through. My dad, oh, good for him. my dad, <laughs> was bored with the whole thing, and I did not sleep the entire night. <laughs> um, it, it, it definitely was a movie that the first time I saw it. It was, I mean, for a kid who was pretty sheltered from what he was able to see, except for those few weekends, I I mean, to have Seven thrust upon him and have to make sense of (laughs) everything that movie is saying and all the implications of that ending, yeah, there there was not sleep that night. I think it was another 10 years before I, I tried to watch it again, at which case, you know, it still got under the skin, but this time the right way, and... I think this time for this rewatch was maybe only the third time I've seen it, um, but I, I'm really glad I did revisit it. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, where do you want to start with Seven? I know, I know. You said, uh, you know, you remember watching it in theaters, uh, so I'll let you take the lead there. Well, it's one of the so so like I, I think we talked about this in, in various ways over over our time together. Some movies you just see at the right time. Mm-hmm. Some movies just hit you exactly in the moment that you are ready to take them in with everything they're accomplishing. Uh, I mean, I remember, uh, I, I remember when Pulp Fiction, you know, came out in 94, it was my, I was just starting my last year of college and I was steeped in the French new wave. And I could see that's exactly what Tarantino was doing. <laughs> that was how I, I, I clicked in with the film i the, the you know i didn't think that i I'd watched so many of those films over the previous few years and i'd never been able I, I understood the importance and i understood the inspiration to the filmmakers that i loved in the 70s but i never saw anybody actually just use it mm-hmm. <laughs> like tarantino does and uh that was a blast and for me part of the reason i've always loved seven aside from just the amazing like I said, visceral experience of seeing it and and the 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 work it makes an audience go through. Uh, it struck me as like the greatest neo noir 
I'd ever seen because there was I was not too far removed from reading one of my all time favorite articles, uh, which is uh, a piece Paul Schrader wrote called Notes on Film Noir in the mid 70s, where he just lays out, okay, this is the history of noir (laughs) in about 10 pages. Like, it's not this, you know, it's not a whole book. It's just this article. Uh, And he he talks about all these. Uh, you know, he, he explains the influences on how noir came to be and what it is and that, you know, people throw this word around and they think it's a genre and it's not a genre. It's a style. Genres are indicative of, uh, of a particular type of conflict and in a particular setting. We know what a Western is going to be about. We know what a gangster film is going to be about. Noir isn't that. It is style. And it's uh, and as 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 directors became overly aware of it throughout the 70s when the genre sort of, well, not that's the genre, when the style reached its apex in the mid-50s and then started to disappear throughout much of the 60s, honestly, uh, it starts to make a comeback in the 70s when we're willing to look at the darker aspects of American life in cinema again. We didn't do that for about 20 years there. <laughs> uh, and so that's when you get stuff like Chinatown, uh, which is very knowing in its nods to old noirs, and it's a genre that has that stayed strong for neo noir did for for a long period of time uh, throughout the seventies and eighties and, and into the nineties, and and for me, he, it, 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 I love the movie because it ticks off almost all of the things, all the stylistic touchstones uh, that Schrader delineates in that piece. Like it's. Uh, uh, you know, it's he he talks about how noir is the majority of scenes are lit for night, even in their even if they're in the daytime, blinds are closed. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and that's certainly the case in Seven. Uh, he talks about how uh, oblique and vertical lines are favored over horizontal lines, and that light comes in in really odd places, in really odd ways in in these films. And while this film is gloriously photographed <laughs> as all Fincher films are uh, that's there and when you cut up the space like that with light it makes it impossible to believe anybody <laughs> no one seems important everybody seems as if they're being swallowed by the space around them all the time which just adds to the tension and the feeling of helplessness uh, he, he writes about how uh the, the the compositional tension is preferred to physical action in noir films. That it's not about movement, it's about how does it look. It's a style. And this always struck me because my least favorite sequence in the entire movie uh, is the chase, the foot chase. The one time they see him briefly <laughs> when he's yeah. got the gun. I don't know if you remember. It's a terrible se- – it's, it's my least favorite sequence in the movie. It's the only thing I wish wasn't there. I understand why it is, but it's always bothered me. And it's because, oh, you don't need it. You guys, it's, it's incredibly scary to go into the library in that movie because, because of how it's composed. Uh, and so all of this stuff just oh, – the, oh, the Freudian attachment to water. That is one of the most wet movies <laughs> I've ever seen seven is just it's always raining yeah even indoors it feels like it's raining uh and that whole idea of the, the just the space you are in is a threat 
at all times. You are not, you know, no human stands out. No human can rise above what they are sucked into. And Seven even does it with the sound design. There's dialogue that's purposefully unintelligible. Mm-hmm. Because you think there's a dialogue scene where you're supposed to be understanding something, and it is imp- impossible to understand what they are saying, even when they're the only, when someone's the only person talking, and all of that. Just, I just, it's it's one of those films where I sat in awe of what he was accomplishing, and at the same time, I was horrified, uh, 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 correctly so, as I was supposed to be as a viewer. <laughs> Over what I was seeing, it was one of the you know it's one of those times where you're just overwhelmed by both the what and the how, mm-hmm. and that doesn't happen all the time. And so yeah, that's why it's it's one of the many reasons it has it has it has it has stuck with me forever and ever. Yeah, it's okay. Like I said, watching it again, and I don't know, did you rewatch it for this, or have you seen it enough times where you're you're pretty okay with it in your mind? I haven't. Okay, <laughs> I haven't. It's been a few years, but I I. I know it. I, I, I know it well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The thing that stuck out, and um, I actually just, I, by chance, a few months ago, I think it was right after Christmas, I was browsing Barnes and Noble, and I saw a DVD of Seven, a Blu-ray of Seven, uh, on sale for like ten bucks, and I'm like, oh, you know, maybe I'll watch this again sometime. So I'll pick it up. Uh, not obviously not knowing we were going to do this, but um, so so I watched it, and yeah, the the thing that you say that stands out, this is. This is definitely a movie where the atmosphere matters so much more than whatever's going on in the story. Like, the mystery itself almost seems beside the whole point, because they don't really even solve the mystery. Like, it comes to them at the end. But what really sticks is just this, this is a movie where, and I feel like I've said this about another movie before, but everything appears to be rotting. Like, the whole world just appears to be rotting and falling apart and wanting to smother you. Like it is, like you said, it's a wet movie, <laughs> but it's also, it's that yellow color where everything looks like it's going to give you dengue fever. Like just, just it, it looks like if you cut yourself outside, you're going to get a disease from being in that city. And it, it's just this idea that there is, some evil overtaking that world. That, that I, I think it's really smart that I, I hadn't noticed this before. But they never name the city they're in. There's, there's. Oh no, no! You know, it's not New York. It's not L.A. It's just this city they're in. It could be anywhere, and it just feels like it's this city where everything has gone to hell. It's kind of stuck in time because there's a lot. There's a lot that goes on that implies it's modern day but the style of that movie is almost stuck in the 70s or or even before that it feels like a city that just isn't moving on and that like you said the rain like there are scenes where i think they're outside walking and it's not raining but two seconds later you can just depend that that rain is just going to drench everything yeah Um, yeah yeah yeah, this is not a fun movie to watch at night on your own um even (laughs) when you've seen it before like it, it just it makes you feel icky like rightfully so, but yeah, it's I, I I mean, I've always loved that about Fincher that he makes you feel his movies, and this is just one it's sticky it, it just burrows into you, and I, I mean that's that lens that that's so much more terrifying than the brief glimpses of violence we get, and it, like you said, it's more compelling than the action scene, the one action scene, which I, I agree is 
kind of this just lackluster foot chase that doesn't really add much <laughs> and it's it's more terrifying to be stuck in that car with Kevin Spacey at the end of the movie even in real life that would be terrifying i guess but just uh, <laughs> but like that that ride at the end out to the desert is more terrifying than that foot chase is because you have no idea what's coming and if you've seen the movie you know what's coming and you still want to stop it so yeah this is uh, well and it's because of all uh, because of all the things we talked about stylistically mm-hmm. we have been we've spent 2 hours in physical spaces where humans don't matter mm-hmm. where they do get swallowed up where they are unable to be heard and then he throws them in the desert for this ending where it's nothing but bright yeah, <laughs> and everybody can see you and everybody can be clearly heard so that there is no mistaking what you are supposed to experience at the end of the movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> and one of the many reasons it is so unsettling uh, and that's a mild word for it <laughs> Unsettling isn't a fair description of, of the emotional response at the end of seven, but it's the one apparently I'm stuck with tonight for some reason. <laughs> but yes, it's so it is it is a gloriously composed movie uh, that also that works. The story does work, even though, as you were saying, right, these guys don't solve anything. <laughs> they are simply trapped. And it's it plays into so many amazing. Uh, going back to that Schrader article, he talks about how you know one of the quintessential things about noir is it is about a hero who is obsessed with the past and the and the now and af- and afraid of the future. And that is uh, you know that is that is Morgan Freeman's character mm-hmm. to a T. He said you know he's he says we're not doing this for anything later. We're just doing this because this is what we do. And Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt thinks he can save it, thinks he can stop and help the future. And and uh, it's why the most heartbreaking scene in the movie and the best scene in the movie and the scene that I will argue with anybody through the end of time, I don't – I understand she seems like a ridiculous public figure now. But Gwyneth Paltrow is a spectacular actress. Oh, yeah. And the scene she and Morgan Freeman have, the one moment where he tells her where he can think about – somebody else where, where he can see how bad the future is <laughs> where he doesn't want it to come where he says get out is just it, it is it is heartbreaking the first time you see it and then when you think back on what that scene means <laughs> and what that scene is setting up for you to experience later it's all the more spectacular it's just it's such an exquisite film <laughs> I, I really I really love David Venture 7 yeah yeah I I really I, I love both Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt in this because um, Morgan Freeman you just keep waiting for that moment like I, I, maybe it's I don't know if it was the same way in '95 but now having seen so many movies where Morgan Freeman plays a certain role and this would have been what a year after Shawshank Redemption you're expecting him to be the voice of reassurance or the voice of you know, levity or calm. Yeah. And he is just a man. Like it reminded me of Tommy Lee Jones and no country for old men. It's really a lot of the same thing. It's this idea that I don't understand this world and I don't like it. And so I am going to retreat from it. And I, I think it's really fascinating to watch Brad Pitt as Mills. His whole response is let's dig into this. Let's follow the plot. Let's, let's get the clues. 
And Somerset, his tactic is he's burrowing deeper. He's getting literature. He's he's searching. It's almost this idea of there, there's not a rational answer that's going to explain this through the clues. It's it's going to take you into the deepest, darkest parts of the soul to understand what's going on. And yeah. like that, that really stuck out to me. Um, where would Brad Pitt have been at this point in his career? Uh, so this is I, 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 off the top of my head, I can't remember what comes directly before and directly after, but I will tell you, this is the moment where I became a Brad Pitt fan. Okay. I was I was very much a Brad Pitt agnostic before this point. <laughs> like, I get it. I understand why you all think he's incredibly sexy. He is. But I'm not seeing anything that tells me I need to pay attention to him other than that. Uh, and this this changed that for me. And very rarely has there been a moment where I turned my opinion around on a performer on a single film. Uh, this was one of those very few moments to to watch himself purposefully not ugly himself up but in no way rely on how he looks mm-hmm. i mean he infamously went with brown uh brown tinted contacts for this to cover up his blue eyes <laughs> like he really wanted to downplay all of that uh and to let himself uh be so ugly <laughs> on screen uh, and to give himself over, obviously, to a director that he trusted so much, obviously so, since they've worked together so many times since. They obviously had a fantastic working relationship uh, on this movie. And it was uh, it was remarkable to me to watch somebody come into their own like that uh, in, in this in this in this movie. It's, it's yeah, it's if you tell me uh, I did. I did not believe at all that Brad Pitt was an actor. In, in in the in the word in the, in the way that I like to use that word until this movie, and I was like, "Oh, you're making really smart choices, and you're much savvier than I thought you were." <laughs> All right, I want to pay attention to you. I'm 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 in with you, Mister Pitt. What do you want to do next? I'll follow. I'll follow along with you. Yeah, I, I'm looking up his filmography right now um, because I think this would have been the first time that I would have noticed him anything. Because yeah, I would have not have seen. I would not have seen Cool World. I can tell you that. But uh, you know, I saw Cool World. Oh, did you? <laughs> You're the one. Um, I saw, I remember seeing Cool World in the theater. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at the movies he would have been in, which a lot of them now. You know, I, I know a lot of people who love A River Runs Through It and Legends of the Fall. Um, but Seven would have probably been the first one I saw with him. Uh, watching it now, I, I had forgotten how good how good he is at play, trying to play a tough guy who is extremely insecure. He that That's what really struck me this time, yes. is how insecure he is that maybe he's done the wrong thing by moving to this city. He knows his wife hates it there. He knows that his new partner, who he's replacing, does not like him. And it's just this, this feeling like he has to prove himself, that he wants to prove he can make some sort of difference, and it just keeps dawning on him that that's probably not going to happen. And it's such a like there, there's a vulnerability he brings to that that is really good. Um, yeah, I, I like him a lot. I think Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, she is. I mean, she has to be in this and has to be that pure character because there has to be something worth looking at in this world and saying that's worth protecting and worth utterly ripping your heart out at the end with where it all ends up. Um, yeah, I. I I was really taken by her as well. She, it's not just that scene in the diner, which is fantastic, 
But there's also oh yeah yeah no it's the whole performance yeah the dinner they have before is really good too it's it it's you know it's that scene in every cop movie where the cop and the partner have to bond and uh, you know over talking over the case but she just injects so much humanity both into Brad Pitt's character because you see a new side of him but it brings something out of Morgan Freeman that I I, I think that's the moment you start to see him start to give a shit which is you know, kind of his arc in the movie is coming out of apathy. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it, both, all really good performances. Um, it always surprises me, too. This movie, I think, occupies such a big corner of my mind from keeping me up all night that I forget this is not a movie that shows you a ton, either. They're, like, Fincher's really good at choosing what to show you and what to leave to your imagination and that stuff he leaves to your imagination is often even worse mm-hmm. um yeah this this isn't like i i had this picture in my mind of this gory sadistic movie and it's certainly disturbing but it's really effective how he knows to cut away like just with the sloth one which is probably the part of the movie that still to this day just unnerves me but he knows just enough to the show you opening oh he 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 shows you just enough of that guy's face for it to like burn on your skull, like burn on your brain, and then he cuts away, and you're just left with that. Um, but yeah, it's it's gosh, I mean, there are just so many dark corners this movie likes to look down, and, and you you got me thinking about you know uh, describing Brad Pitt's character that way as as a tough guy who is obviously insecure. Who is, you know, who who is who is, I don't want to say fallible, but beyond that, who is who recognizes that they might not be in control of everything that they're, you know, or they're they're responding to that in some really strong way. And I realized that's really consistent. Uh, that consistent feature for Fincher, I'd never really thought about it before. But that's, I mean, that's certainly the entire point of Fight Club. And that is, uh, it, when you were talking about it, it reminded me of. One of I, I really like Fincher's version of Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, uh, and I, I really like it because you see James Bond play genuine fear, <laughs> and Daniel Craig can do that. Daniel Craig does that really, really well. I cannot think of too many high-profile movies that are following that storyline where you see the male figure in absolute panicked fear for their life. And uh, and he does that in that movie really, really effectively. Uh, and even something like Social Network, which is all about the you know mm-hmm. <laughs> the havoc that is wreaked <laughs> when 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 the male when the fragile male ego is 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 is, is uh, unaccepted. Uh, that's really fascinating. I'd never thought about that as a, as a lit motif for all of Fincher's ouvure. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, and I hadn't thought of that either. I just I was seeing it in Brad Pitt here, but I, I mean that's really what just stuck out with me. Um, that ending to the movie too, just still like even when, it might be worse when you know what's coming. But that final thirty minutes <laughs> is just it's nerve wracking, and it you just feel the sickness in your stomach from the moment Kevin Spacey shows up. You just feel this sinking. For the whole rest of the movie um, and, and I'm still shocked 25 years later That the movie ends The way it does Like that someone yeah, let him it, do that From If I remember correctly He you know this this is a script that went through 
a bunch a bunch of revisions. People wanted to make to make it. I remember an article in Premiere, uh, like n- within the year of it coming out, saying that uh, the film everybody's been trying to redo is Rosemary's Baby. That that's been the that's been the benchmark that everybody's trying to come up with the next Rosemary's Baby. Just a, a, a smart adult horror movie. And uh, and then when I saw this, I was like, oh, they did it. Fincher did it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember reading that the scripts had gone through a bunch of revisions and then that Fincher came aboard and read the original script and said, why aren't we shooting this? <laughs> and so shot it. And you got to remember, he's coming off of Alien 3, mm-hmm. which he did not, was, which was we've talked about before, was certainly taken away from him. That movie is only half his. And by the way... It's all this. It's the half of everything that's interesting, uh, but that's so remarkable that he, you know, he. I don't think if he'd had that fight the first time around, he would have. He would have bothered the second time. Like he knew this is what needed to be done, and boy was he right. Yeah, <laughs> boy was he right. It's funny. I read a few things this week. Um, one of them was that when they sent over the script, they sent him over a version that ends the way the movie does with, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box. And so he shows up to talk about the movie with the execs at New Line and uh, with um, Andrew Kevin Walker. And he's like, yeah, so, you know, the end with the, the head in the box, that's that's really interesting. And like, oh, no, we've rewritten that since then. That's not the... Uh, you know, that that's not the ending. He's like, well, that's why I was interested. And Brad Pitt apparently had it in his contract, too. Like, hey, this, this is the movie I signed up to make. It has to end on this note. Um, but I know they shot, they storyboarded several different endings. I know they were, there was talk of putting Brad Pitt's dog's head in the box instead of Gwyneth Paltrow's. And you need that ending, though. You Like, this movie doesn't work without that ending. Uh, it doesn't yes. unsettle you the same way because, and I think that's what every movie that followed after Seven. There were so many movies that tried to be the next Seven, and I think they all they knew was make it look grungy and have a twist, and they missed the fact that the only reason there's a twist in this is because it has to be it's consistent with the point and tone of this movie, which is the bad guy wins and this world is falling apart and this world is getting awful and it needs to leave you with that gun punch. It's, it's there for a reason, um, which is what yeah. kept me up at, uh, up at night. Um, I had always seen the final line in the movie, uh, you know, which is the William Faulkner quote that Morgan Freeman gives. I had always seen that as kind of the, the little hopeful button at the end of the movie. But now watching it again, I'm like, you don't have that little bit of hope from him without John Doe winning, which is the whole point of what right. John Doe is trying to do, which makes that ending very yes. unsettling to me. Uh, and I, I, it passed over me the first two times. Like, I think I just so wanted a little breath of fresh air that I'm like, you know, just willing to accept that. But watching it again, I'm like, oh, and that breath of fresh air is really pretty rancid. Like, because, you know, it, it doesn't happen without the bad guy winning. And yeah, that's an yeah. unsettling end. And uh, it's a it's a deeply philosophical film. It is. <laughs> it it's... really is. It, it is a it is a it is an aesthetic presentation of uh, necessity. Might be too strong a word, but the necessity to understand and accept uh, what we have defined as evil. Mm-hmm. 
that that it's going to exist what 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 can we do about it <laughs> it, it <laughs> and the answer isn't doesn't fit any comfortable social definition that we've come up for that yet mm-hmm it made me think too at this point in time and especially when they would have been starting to make this you had had just a few years before silence of the lambs uh came out and and i i do really love silence of the lambs but i remember I. I i remember you know there there was this issue at the end of that that everyone you know a lot of audiences were starting to cheer on hannibal lecter and it almost feels like this is a reaction like we're going to make a movie where you know, you don't cheer on the bad guy. That you don't really want the bad guy to win. Uh, here are the implications of what happens if, if he wins. <laughs> like it almost feels like a reaction to that. And I don't know if it was, and I'm reading into that. Um, but but it almost feels like, oh, okay. Here's what really happens. Uh, you know, when Hannibal Lecter gets to win, when he proves he's right. Here's what it costs you. You know, it's not just cheering over a nice pun. Um, but I don't want to say it too much because I really do like Silence of the Lambs. But uh, <laughs> and and I also think like there's this feeling I have like I I know this movie isn't a supernatural movie, but in my head I always want to group it with like a supernatural thriller, and I think it's because that feeling and presence of evil is so strong in this movie, like it feels. Oh well, yes. Yeah, it, I mean it's not a cop there's... movie; it's a horror movie, but. Yes, it's supernatural in the sense that it's 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 a vision of hell. Mm-hmm. So yes, absolutely fitting that you would think of it as, as supernatural in in that sense, not in the not in the ghost sense. Yeah, <laughs> but in the Rosemary's Baby sense. Yeah, oh, yeah. The, the, I was really really taken by by watching it again. I it probably will be you know another decade or so before I watch it again. But um, I, I think that's a, a testament to how powerful it is too. Um, yeah, and I think what it did to me, too, was watching it again, I realized when I think back about Fincher, I was severely underrating this movie. Like, I kind of had it as a mid-tier Fincher, but it might be, I might, I might put Zodiac ahead of it, but this might be, I, I could, I could stand an argument for this being his best film. He made, in successive decades, one of the best films of the decade, and they both happen to be serial killer movies. I don't care what order you want to put them. They're two very different movies. And so, you know, some of it is a matter of taste. I I tend, at this point in my life, to give Zodiac the edge. Uh, But it's ridiculous to rank them. It's a a stupid... It's it's a conversation starter and nothing else. These are two just towers... Uh, you know, it's they're so good that The Social Network is his third best film. <laughs> That's how good those two movies are. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, easily his third best film. <laughs> it, it, and it's great. Uh, and, and thoroughly different than the other two as well. Uh, and he's, oh yeah, this is this is where I bought the Fincher. I, I was all in on Seven. To the point that the follow-up, the game is the only film of his I actively dislike because I just kind of hate what it is. And I was so expecting greatness after seven, seven gave me such an expectation for what he was going to follow it with. And what he followed it with was just the exact opposite of this. (laughs) He made a film that was all style and about how great the style was. (laughs) 
with just rubbing your face in the fact that you would expect substance. <laughs> I was like, oh, you're disappointing me now. I, now you remind me of the video music video director you were. Uh, this is not what I want from somebody. What's interesting is uh, when I knew we were going to do this, I really wanted to go back and watch uh, as many of Fincher's films as I could. And I, I didn't really, I didn't get beyond Seven and The Game. But I did rewatch The Game. Um, which I had not seen since, uh, looking at this on Wikipedia, I had not seen it since September 12th, 1997, which was its opening <laughs> night when I saw it in theaters. Um, and I remembered really enjoying the game and really thinking it was a clever, stylish thriller with a really cool ending. Um, so watching it again, I realized that's not really true. Um, it's... It's a movie where if you think about it for two seconds, none of it makes any sense. Um, th- th- there's some stuff I like about it. Like, I, I like Michael Douglas's performance in it quite a bit. Uh, and-, and I think, you know, it's it's Fincher making something that looks really stylish. But it is a movie that, in many ways, to me, it just feels like... It feels like a weaker version of the movies that bookend it from Fincher. Because... Seven and yeah. the game and Fight Club all have this theme going through of trauma or chaos shaking you out of complacency. Like all three of those movies deal with that in some way. And the game is kind of, you know, it's the studio, the safe studio version of this. It's, it's you know, it's exactly what you expect when you say Michael Douglas is in a twisty thriller. Um, like it, it feels safe. Uh, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Uh, there, there's nothing in this movie that stands up to rational thought. Um, but it's also playing around with this idea Fight Club deals with, which is the idea of losing everything to truly find yourself. But again, it feels like the safe version of that. Like this is the version of Fight Club a studio wouldn't fight him on. Um, it, it really feels like the one that should have come before Seven. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was surprised yeah. to go back and see that. And and that even the way he plays and, with the ending just feels like a cop-out. And for me, the film that points out how empty it is is actually the follow-up to Fight Club, Panic Room, which is a perfect B-thriller. I adore mm-hmm. Panic Room because that is truly just an exercise in in genre that isn't doing – that isn't playing any metagame with you. It just works. And to realize he could do that made me so happy. I thought at the time that's exactly what he needed to do. He just needed to make a meat and potatoes movie, and he did. And he made a great, great one, <laughs> a really entertaining one. Well, uh, and then, of course, he waited six years to do to do Zodiac. So, and forming what I believe is sort of two Fincher's career. I, I tend to think of Zodiac as the beginning of the second act. It's funny. I'm looking at his filmography right now, and I. I, I realize he has this tendency to do a movie that sometimes I don't like it at all, or sometimes it just feels like it's him kind of getting something out of his system, like some sort of, you know, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make a movie so that I can play around with my toys a little bit, or make something that's kind of a technical exercise, or he'll make something I just don't like, and I realize he'll do that, and I will dislike it, and then he'll do something to follow it up that I actually really like. So he followed the game up with Fight Club, which we talked about Fight Club last season. There's a whole episode you can listen to. He did Panic Room, which I totally agree with you. I think it is a very effective 
suspense piece. It's not doing anything revolutionary. I think he was getting a lot of technical stuff done that he wanted to do. He was playing around with new cameras and computers and everything, and it, it works. But it's you know, it, it doesn't get. I just love outright. I love that he outright steals the opening titles of North by Northwest. That's my favorite. <laughs> one of my favorite things about it. But then he follows that up, like you said, with Zodiac, which I I think I'm in agreement is probably his best movie. He did Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which I don't like. Um, and I will go to my grave saying that there should have been a six-foot-tall infant at the end of the movie. But <laughs> but he did, he did that. I didn't really care for it. But that kind of cleared whatever he had to get out of his system to do the social network. I don't really like his girl with the dragon tattoo, but I love Gone Girl. So, and then we'll see what happens with Mank. Yeah, I'm, I'm fond of. Uh, I like I said, the game is the only one I don't like, and like we're we're, we're sort of ignoring Alien Three altogether, which is the only thing reasonable to do if you're talking about censure. It's worth a look, uh, just as a wow, this is a mess. Yeah, <laughs> that part was good. It was Fincher's part. Um, I don't even think I don't assign it to him. Even I think of Seven as sort of his, or at least one point five. Yeah, the first time we get to see a true artistic statement and oh damn did he knock it out of the park (laughs) yeah I don't even think I would have seen Alien 3 until years after I had seen 7 Um, I'm pretty sure I saw Alien Resurrection before I saw Alien 3 um, which probably made Alien 3 seem pretty good Uh, but yeah yeah comparatively (laughs) yeah yeah Um, it's weird I don't think of it as his yeah yeah, yeah, but then he'll he'll do these movies where it seems like some some of them I just don't like, but it prepares me that oh the next one I'm probably gonna really like because he's clearing something out and then he usually just tends to really impress me. Um, what I have not seen is Mindhunter. Really argue... Sorry. Oh, what I have not seen was Mindhunter, his TV show for Netflix. I was just gonna say if, if we're if we're gonna run down his his directorial stuff. You gotta, you gotta talk about Mindhunter, which is brilliant. I, I adore those two seasons of Mindhunter. I think they are, they really accomplished some something even harder to do in that format uh, than a movie format. In that he presents you with a situation you have seen and finds new notes to play in it that don't violate what you expect, but just illuminate aspects of the characters. Uh, in ways that are really surprising, and it's really spectacular because it focuses very much on one... There are three main characters. One of them very much feels like the lead in season one, and I was wondering how that would play with season two, and season two shifts the focus to the other two uh, in really interesting ways. It's a... I, I adore Mindhunter. I can't... I cannot recommend Mindhunter enough. Now is the time, Chris. You're home. You got 20 hours to burn. I will Trust have me, to... They're all worth it. It's really good. Okay, and what you just said might have intrigued me, because I think I... I, I, I know I tried to watch it, and I got halfway through the first episode, and it was probably one of those nights where it was like, I have an hour, I'll try a new TV show. Um, and there was something about Jonathan Groff's character that just bothered me so bad like i just remember thinking (laughs) wow this guy is very bland and i usually like jonathan groff quite a bit um and and i I had a few friends tell me no you gotta stick with it he's he's actually pretty yeah yeah but uh yeah mind hunter had me because i am a sucker i think we've talked about this 
I am a sucker for hostage situations in movies. I think this is just one of the most inherently fascinating uh, situations you can write and direct and act and every possible angle. Uh, and the opening scene of the entire series is a hostage negotiation uh, that does not end the way I expected it to end. And so they had me. <laughs> they, had, they had me at hello. I was, I, I was all in on this show right from scene one. Uh, and it, it did not disappoint. All right, I will have to go back and look. I, I, I've, you're like the third person who's told me, go back and give it a chance. And uh, so I, I definitely need to do that because it does seem a show that's right up my alley, um, much more so than uh, House of Cards was, which I know he was also involved with, but I think a little less hands-on. Uh, he was it's, – it's he left it. He was he was very much there for the first season and helped Netflix launch it. Okay. From what I understand, like Netflix didn't have it was the first Netflix prestige show yep. by any means, and they had no infrastructure in place on what to do. And he basically gave them the entire ad campaign, <laughs> like the visual, the posters, and the magazine ads and po- and billboards. He completely designed and gave them. <laughs> so it's very much, and you can tell in that first season that it's very much his. Uh, and you can tell after that first season that the rest of it is is them trying to make it without him. <laughs> uh, I watched it longer than I probably should have, and I didn't finish it. How's that for yep. how long I watched that uh, show? I watched it longer than I probably should have as well, but for me that was about six episodes. <laughs> and, uh, and then I was like, yeah, I think I'm done with this. I think I'm good. Um, and that was in the day where I didn't have 20 Netflix shows to choose from. So, Well, is there anything exactly. else? Exactly. Is there anything else we need to say about Seven? Uh, other than if you've never seen it, go, 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 yeah. go watch Seven and, and, and Marvel and what hits at a movie that I can't believe is 25 years old. Oh, my word. No, and, and the, it's it feels just so fresh and vital. And it, it was really not to bring the room down or anything, but watching it at this time when it sometimes feels like everything is just kind of falling apart was really kind of jarring. Um, <laughs> and, and especially because you feel like if you walk into those streets with Brad Pitt, you're going to get a disease really, really quickly. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah I, I concur. Seven is a fantastic movie, and I'm really glad we kicked off our series with this. Uh, Me do too. You, would you like to tell the people what we're talking about next week? Uh, uh, oh, oh, I mean, I remember the four films we're doing, but which one did we say we're doing next week? Oh, are we doing smoke? Are we doing smoke? I, I think I had mall rats down. Are we doing 12 but... monkeys? Which one are we doing? Oh, I think I had oh, mall rats. Oh, you did have mall rats down. You're right. You're uh, right. We're going to, we're going to do mall rats and we will slice open the, <laughs> the decaying carcass of Kevin Smith <laughs> and analyze one of the most disappointing filmographies of the 20th century. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and the thing is, uh, I, I haven't seen Mallrats in years, so I'm kind of looking forward to going back and revisiting a movie I remember sort of liking. But it's really just an excuse. Like, Kevin Smith just fascinates me, the choices he has made. Uh, not always in a great way does it fascinate me, but it is definitely, I think, worth talking about. So, And we're talking about it at a good time. I have not seen this since I saw it in the theater. Well, you need to see it now because he just announced the sequel's coming, baby. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> that needs to happen. So that'll be next week. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll respond to that. I'll respond to that next week. I already know exactly <laughs> what I want to say. All right, looking forward to it. That'll be next week. In the meantime, Perry, where can people find you? 
You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at Perry Loves Film. You can hear me on 1290 AM in the Ann Arbor area every Friday morning talking about uh, whatever I've been up to viewing-wise with Lucy and Lance, Lance and the Lucy and Lance show. And, uh, boy, uh, you know, you can't find me at the theater nowadays. But, you know, you, 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 that's, you, you hear that frantic clicking over the Criterion channel? That's probably my thumb on my remote control. <laughs> well, you can find me online at Mere Christianity on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me reviewing movies at BHM Pop Culture. And other than that, you can find me uh, alternating between my living room and the family room as traffic allows. So we will be back next week to talk about Mallrats, Snoochie Booches.